Hi everyone, welcome to Crypto Clarified, investing in the truth. In this podcast series, we'll be digging into the truth behind today's cryptocurrency headlines. My name's Jason Guthrie, Head of Digital Assets at Wisdom Tree. And today I'll be joined by two co-hosts, Camilla Russo, Founder and Editor of The Defiant, and Ben Dean, uh, Director of Strategy in Digital Assets here at Wisdom Tree. Uh, we'll be covering recent crypto market sell-off over the weekend and developments in technology and the metaverse. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Crypto Clarified, Investing in the Truth. Uh, this is the podcast series where we come together each month to, to look at the uh, the biggest headlines and trends that we've seen in the investment space, all relating to crypto. Uh, my name's Jason Guthrie, and I'm Head of Digital Assets here at Wisdom Tree. Uh, today's episode, my co-host is Benjamin Dean. Uh, he's a director of uh, strategy in the digital assets team here at Wisdom Tree as well. And we're going to be concentrating today mainly on sort of the big market moves that we saw over the weekend, sort of the sell-off that took place, uh, as well as some of the sort of moves that we've seen in, in big tech and the impacts that those have on the cryptocurrency industry. Uh, before we dive into all of that, Ben, do you want to take a couple of, uh, couple of minutes to introduce yourself? Maybe tell us a bit about how you got into crypto? It would be a pleasure. Thank you for having me here today, Jason. It's uh, it's great to be on such a new but August podcast uh, discussing crypto with you. Uh, as you said, I'm your relative newcomer, the director for digital assets at Wisdom Tree, and I am not someone from the financial industry. I've got somewhat of an eclectic background, we might say. I come directly from cybersecurity. I spent a number of years, and. Uh, well, that actually overlaps quite a bit with the crypto ecosystem, and, and we may touch on that later in our discussion today. Uh, kind of my story begins here years and years and years ago. Uh, anyone who followed the cypherpunks throughout the 90s and 2000s, like Phil Zimmerman uh, releasing public key cryptography, BitTorrent, Tor, these kinds of open source protocols that use cryptography to protect people's security and privacy. Anyone who followed that when Bitcoin arrived 13 years ago, seeing something was stirring and there was potential in that uh, breakthrough really uh, in technology. Uh, hey, in terms of my actual moment like, where I thought things might get interesting, I have had the good pleasure of being able to travel and work in a lot of different places around the world. Venezuela in 2013, I ended up in some work. At the time, the country was just starting what unfortunately has been a very long period of macro and political, macroeconomic and political instability, inflation, currency controls, a, a difficult to access banking system. But back in 2013, almost everybody had Blackberries. It's the highest Blackberry possession per capita in the world in Venezuela, which was unusual looking at that situation and knowing that there was an open source protocol for payments that could one day potentially be accessible via a cell phone. Well, that's where uh, the potential started to show itself. And here we are, eight or nine years later, discussing crypto on, on this podcast with you today. Suffice to say, a lot has changed in the intervening period. Uh, we're going to touch on some of that today, I think. The market is indistinguishable to that which it was even five years ago. And in a way, that's what creates uh, potential opportunities uh, now and in the future uh, that those who are perceptive enough might be able to capture. All right. No, that's, that's really interesting. It'd be great to get your, I guess, slightly differentiated opinion as a technologist, as a cybersecurity 
individual on, on some of the issues that are in fact affecting the investment space today. Um, but let's jump into to some of these issues. And before we get going, I am forced to read you guys the disclaimer. Um, so I just need to clarify that views and opinions expressed in the podcast are, of course, subject to change. Anything we present here is not intended uh, to be relied upon as a forecast, as research, nor as investment or tax advice. Information presented is not a recommendation offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities and reliance upon it is on the sole discretion of the listener. Uh, information we present may be based on back tests or forecast data. So please remember, past performance is no indicator of future returns. Um, so, I mean, look, let's jump in. The, the, the big talking point this week is the market activity that we saw over the weekend, um, which was, I don't want to call it a flash crash, but most of the major cryptocurrencies lost 25% in a two-day period, really over about an eight-hour period. Uh, on the weekend, Bitcoin's 38% off its high peak to trough. Uh, this is a really big move. Um, wh what are people saying about this? What's the perception of, of this move? What's, what's driving it from your perspective? Living globally traded 24-7 available set of markets, it's always very difficult to pin any one or few events to a course, uh, especially so in this space. You know, I've, as I said, lived and worked in a lot of different parts of the world. The way in which these markets are used and uh, the way in which people interact with these markets are very different in one part of the world, let's say, for instance, Asia, compared to another part of the world, let's say, Latin America. Mm -hmm. Still, in spite of that opacity and the difficulty to draw back to certain uh, narratives or causes, uh, I can tell you a little bit about what I see and what I hear. And one of the most prevalent explanations has to do with leveraged long positions. So the idea behind this narrative is that there are people who go out and take leveraged positions that the Bitcoin price will increase, or any cryptocurrency for that matter, but Bitcoin is the largest. And uh, when the market turns against them, uh, the margin calls come in, one must liquidate to meet the margin, and without a stop loss in place, one ends up uh, in kind of a spiraling uh, system of liquidations. Uh, that is one argument, or one narrative, backed up by the idea that of cryptocurrency trading happens with bots. So being automated, you end up with this kind of spiral feedback loop effect that can pull markets down very quickly. But we also have seen in the past when leveraged short positions are large, uh, when they get, uh, when the market turns on them, uh, the prices can actually go up very quickly as well. This is called getting wrecked uh, in crypto parlance. Uh, suffice to say, volatility is not new. And uh, again, I would be cautious to put it down to any one particular metric or phenomenon. But the idea of this feedback loop with no circuit breakers uh, is, is prevalent now and really wasn't the case five to seven years ago. What are your thoughts? What have you heard or observed? Look, leverage is, I think, the thing that people are talking about most. My Twitter feed is nothing but people talking about number of liquidations or too much leverage in the market. But if you have a look at some of the statistics, I mean, the, the leverage actually, whilst it's come off a lot, the leverage ratio, people have a look at the, the kind of contracts outstanding reserve ratios and things, still is is relatively high on historic terms. So this does feel a bit different. I think volumes are also lower than what we saw in the sell-off in um, April, May time. 
Um, so it does feel like this is more than just just the leverage sell-off. It also isn't being accompanied by, I think, the same panic that we've seen in the market. Now, maybe that's complacency over the good run that crypto's had in the last three months and the crypto native guys aren't, aren't, aren't sort of seeing it for what it is. But we are seeing coins outside of Bitcoin and Ethereum maybe holding their value a little bit more than what we've seen in previous sell-offs. Um, in some instances, for things like Luna or, or Matic, um, they're actually making gains on where they were prior to the sell-off, which is unusual given that Bitcoin tends to be the more stable, safer area. And if it sells off by 5%, everything else is going for 25%. Um, so this does feel different than last time. I haven't got a good answer to exactly what is different about it. Could just be the maturity of the market, could be the value that exists outside of the major coins is now more robust, more stable, that the market is maybe a bit more mature or, or sensible than it used to be. I'm not sure. Well, the market has definitely changed. Uh, as I said earlier on, it's indistinguishable to that which it was five years ago. Part of that is not just the growth. Bitcoin is as big as it's ever been in market capitalization terms, but the diversification of the space. Somewhat started with Ethereum and now has spawned into these Ethereum alternatives. Mm. There's so much experimentation going on at the moment that uh, indeed we have seen some of these other coins and tokens bounce back a lot faster. Yeah. The element would have to do with who is actually trading on the market now. Again, five years ago, institutional investment participation was virtually naught. Mm. Uh, and it was mostly retail driven, very Bitcoin. Centric, and what we're seeing at the moment is a availability for products for institutional investors and their participation, which keeps growing and growing. No, uh, yeah, I tend to agree with that. Let's let's take a minute to talk about the diversification in the market or the health of the market. I mean, a result of this shakeout, whilst a lot of sort of value, let's say, was was taken away or market cap was reduced, the top ten call it the liquid subset of the crypto market, looks a lot healthier than it did before that shakeout to me. There's sort of none of the joke meme cryptocurrencies have survived through that. Doge is out of the top 10. Um, taking sort of a holistic long-term approach, there's an argument to be made that these kind of health, these kind of shakeouts are healthy for the market, help you know work out what is quality, what can weather these kind of pullbacks. Well, with Doge points out of the top 10 again, but the dog is so cute. <laughs> hey, it's uh, indeed this kind of process whereby one kind of sifts through those projects over time that have got the technical capability, the open source community around them, companies that are building uh, products uh, and services on top of the networks. Uh, indeed, the top 10 is constantly changing, that's a given. Um, the composition of it is very, very different, winding the clock back three years or again, six years. What I think the most interesting development there has to do with what I mentioned before, the Ethereum alternatives. Yep. Well, Avalanche, Cardano, Solana are there. They've now hit critical mass in a lot of ways. Uh, we are kind of seeing that it's not quite a triaging effect, but we are starting to see kind of these new participants that are holding their water, to use a blunt phrase. Uh, and so that's kind of pretends where so there might be some opportunities in the near future for projects that are built on those those networks. No, I, I agree that that narrative of sort of a multi-chain future, the idea that they aren't, it's not Ethereum or these other smart contract platforms, that there'll be different use cases 
better suited for certain characteristics of a given chain, given smart contract platform, that we can have a multi-chain future, that these concepts of interoperability are becoming more commonplace. I, I agree with that. Um, I mean, kind of the last point to talk about on the market moves or the makeup uh, is maybe the stock to flow model. And I know that a large talking point among those looking at crypto invested or looking to make investments or trying to assess the, the, the ecosystem is a valuation model. And the one that has risen to the top or at least is the most popular is the stock to flow model, which, which has its basis as in modeling scarcity of supply uh, over the way kind of gold has behaved in applying that to Bitcoin. It looks as though the way the market cycles are behaving at the moment that that might break. Do you think that it is going to break? And do you think that that would have a big impact on the market? I wouldn't want to predict whether the stock to flow model will break or not, because if I were to say yes, then I would have been wrong for years and years and years. <laughs> uh, a lot of the time we get the request for give me a valuation model and flagged at the top of the podcast. I'm not from finance. My previous life, I was building models of essentially simulations of parts of the internet collapsing. And uh, when you build models, uh, what you're doing is trying to isolate variables in reality that you think are important for phenomenon that you're looking at. And then you try and take a structured approach to thinking about how those variables interact. And uh, in the financial services sector, you're thinking a little bit about where things might go. The stock to flow model conceptually is this idea that you have all of this demand for Bitcoin uh, pent up and growing. Uh, and a constrained supply that's increasingly constrained over time, price starts being driven up. There is endless debate and acrimony around the stock to flow model uh, and whether it will hold or not. Uh, even if it didn't hold uh, within its own kind of standard error bands, still conceptually the idea that you've got constrained supply with increasing demand, uh, even just from a macroeconomics perspective, that that dynamic, if it continues to hold, then we can see what's going to happen to the price. And while there might be some short-term volatility around that created by phenomenon like leverage positions, I saw somebody the other day post that they went 50x leverage on a, on a Bitcoin position. You know, like that's what we're talking about here. Mm. So that that creates it makes the price bounce around a lot in the short term. But if you step back and look at the medium to long term price actually has held well for some of the dynamics I've, I've mentioned just now. Yeah, I, look, I agree that you should always zoom out on these things and look at the longer term trends. But inherent, well, maybe not inherent, but sort of implicit from the stock to flow model was this idea around the four year cycle, which is built around the, the kind of halving events where the Bitcoin production from mining or the Bitcoin reward from mining is halved. And historically, we have seen these big price run ups in the period of time post the halving, that's the reduction in supply, therefore the, the increased pressure on the price. I think it's sort of inarguable that that's lengthening out now. And if you look at how it's evolved over the last couple of these, that it is getting longer and longer. Do we get to a point where it's no longer in this four-year cycle or maybe that's broken already and that the market can see these things coming, tends to price it in a little bit more, you know, gradually, rationally? Yeah rationally the reflexivity of the markets is mm. kind of what you're pointing at you know there's actually a dovetail here between the two topics the, the first is around is this market driven by bitcoin 
four-year halvenings, and for less initiated, every four years, the supply of Bitcoin that's created every 10 minutes halves until a point in, I think, roughly 2140, where no more Bitcoins will be created. So uh, in the past, because it was mostly a Bitcoin-driven market, this four-year halvening cycle creates supply shocks uh, every four years. The counter-argument now would be that the market is more diversified, larger, and so it shouldn't be driven as much by this Bitcoin halvening cycle. And what we're going to find out is whether indeed this market has diversified to the point where it, it eclipses the Bitcoin halvening effect. Uh, mm. In a way, if you think about it, like it shouldn't matter. <laughs> the Bitcoin code has not changed in the last week. Uh, so the price, in a way, it's not a function of the code itself, but still it's somewhat contingent on the code. Why would the price of Ethereum bounce around based on the price of Bitcoin? They've got very different monetary policies, and they've got very, very different use cases. And so the fact that we see that periodic correlation, one argument would be that we should see less of it over time as each of these networks come to their own. However, we still see correlation at the so you know, what does that tell you about the participants in the market and how those decisions are being made? Yeah, true. Okay, so look, stepping outside maybe Bitcoin or the, or the market moves, uh, decentralized finance. I mean, this has remained very strong through, through the turbulence and has had a big pickup in uh, activity this year, at least as measured by the total value locked or the amount of money that's sort of put to work against these uh, decentralized finance protocols. However, there's been a lot of talk or at least an increased amount of talk recently about exploits in this space around smart contract exploits or hacking activity as it sort of colloquially gets termed as um, within the space. And I'd be really interested in your opinion on what's happening. Do we have an actual rise in exploits in, in hacking activity or is this headlines looking for the counterpoint to what, what has admittedly been an overly optimistic market for the last three months? It's an excellent question. In my experience, cybersecurity is one of these things that exists in people's heads. It's like someone in a black hoodie on a computer with numbers shooting around in the background. It's, it's almost mysterious to a lot of people. Cybersecurity is one of these realities we have to live with now, given how reliant we are upon digital technologies. And the important element for folks to know that are listening to this podcast uh, this DeFi decentralized finance space, a lot of these new networks are relatively experimental. So the cryptocurrency digital asset market is a highly adversarial uh, area in which to be writing and, and putting code into production, putting it out in front of people to use. The stakes are so high because if one finds a bug in the code and can exploit it, the payoff is potentially huge. It's much more lucrative than going and, and trying to fish people via email or send people. So what we're seeing right now is a lot of experimentation in, in the DeFi space. And we're seeing what code is written by whom and how good the code is. Mm -hmm. the, one of the elements that concerned me in the last few weeks is what I perceive to be an uptick in vulnerabilities being exploited. Celsius Network, we saw another one the other week. Badger Dow found another one. Uh, this is somewhat part and parcel of the process by which cybersecurity actually is increased because as you find vulnerabilities, you fix them. On the other hand, a tremendous amount of money is being lost 
uh, to the people who are able to find these vulnerabilities. And if I can identify one very important element for folks, uh, if you look at Bitcoin, for instance, as a protocol, it's been around for 13 years and has not been hacked at the protocol level. Mm. That's actually an extremely impressive achievement software-wise. That means it's written with the highest levels of fault-tolerant software design. It's kind of the level of design you need to, for NASA to put uh, shuttles in space. Uh, that is very impressive, and so one must be very cautious with newer projects that are, as of yet, not battle-hardened. Mm. And uh, that should figure into different investors' evaluations of where they wish to get exposure, because uh, it's cybersecurity is not obvious to everyone. But it's unfortunately just a reality of the way in which the world works these days. Mm. Well, it's, it's cybersecurity in maybe a slightly different context to what people normally associate it with, right? Cybersecurity is okay, protect your passwords at its most basic, but probably a firewall and some antivirus software. But here we talk about the security of an open source code that's developed in, and this is your term that I've heard you use before that I really like, adversarial software development environment. And so that's sort of a different concept. Could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yes. So, as you say, adversarial. Uh, unfortunately, when you connect things to the internet, uh, as Dan Gear says, you, you expose it to every psychopath around the corner. Uh, this is the reality of software development when it's hooked up to the internet. In the context of digital assets and, and cryptocurrencies, maybe the analog, you, you mentioned passwords before, the analog there is your private keys to any wallet you may control. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why, uh, actually, it's, it's a relatively difficult space in which for some institutional investors to engage because the idea that I've got to protect this private key, the measures I'm going to take to protect those private keys is somewhat foreign mm -hmm. to them. Uh, and then there's that kind of the protocol coding level. Uh, so you've got the protocols themselves, which fortunately don't tend to fail too much. They don't get big enough if they fail. Uh, then you've got the smart contract layer so the layer two applications. And because of the way in which the, some of the functionality that's been created is highly sophisticated. So in the smart contract space and in DeFi, essentially what they're doing is writing code that mimics functions of the traditional financial sector. So relatively sophisticated interactions that have to occur. Uh, that means the code has to be more complex, which increases the probability of there being bugs in the code. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned before, the payoff is potentially huge relative to other ways one might go and uh, deploy one's skills uh, as a hacker. Well, yeah, the, the concept of uh, having to patch exploits or how well-tested, battle-tested a given bit of software is, is interesting. I mean, Microsoft need to patch Windows every week to stay ahead of bugs of potential exploits. I mean, most of the patches they give are security updates. And here we talk about open source protocols doing, as you say, sophisticated interactions that need to, that don't really get the benefit of the same kind of patching frequency. It's not centralized control. I, I'm personally a huge believer in open source technology, open source uh, software, open source protocols, kind of being a driver of, of better organized cooperation between people, exchanges of value, what have you. Um, but I think this does sort of highlight the importance of that battle testing of things being out in the world of being looked at by people that could potentially exploit it, of being tested. And, and when it comes to sort of putting money to work in the space, it sort of speaks to one of the risks that you might not 
think about, right? Why would you invest in, in only the most established projects? They might not have the raciest returns, but something might have a racy return because it's not tested yet. Therefore, its future is pretty uncertain um, if it hasn't been out there long enough, if it hasn't enough users to find these holes. Exactly. So pointed at two elements that are extremely important. The first is that it's open source code, which means anyone can go and read the source code, see what it does, matched up against what is claimed the software does. And it also means that there are more people to keep an eye on any bugs that might be there. The second element you've touched on is, is also correct. The longer the, the protocols, these contracts are out there and they survive, mm -hmm. the better. That's a very good survivability metric. Uh, the last element is around the way that software evolves. You mentioned that with updates. Uh, I've noticed it's not immediately obvious to a lot of folks in this space, but from the traditional financial sector, software evolves over time. And so when we think about what opportunities these networks might hold in the future, it's important to remember the code itself can change and improve. The functionality can change and improve over time as things like Moore's law continues to kick in, be at a lower rate, uh, the cost of storage decreases, bandwidth capacity increases, uh, quantum computers might eventually become a reality. The good news is these networks can be updated albeit uh, via different mechanisms, mm -hmm. but in that way, they're able to evolve, scale, change to match the increased or different use cases that, that people have when they, they want to use these networks. Okay. All right. So thinking about the, the sector more broadly, this month, there were a large number of, I think, announcements or changes at big tech firms that have impacted well, or at least reorienting themselves toward kind of blockchain digital asset space. And given your background as a technologist, I think it's a, this would be a good thing to dive into with you. I think the one that really jumped out to me is Jack Dorsey leaving Twitter. Um, I found his comments around uh, Bitcoin and the need for a digital or a native currency for the internet really interesting. And the fact that he'd previously said if this had existed when we invented Twitter, we would have built it entirely differently, like not oriented it around the ad revenue is essentially what the guy was saying. Um, they did introduce Bitcoin tipping on the platform and shortly after he moves on. Um, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. For me, it sort of says that it's going to be hard for tech companies to reorient toward Web 3.0 and crypto native ways of doing business and that he needs to go and build that somewhere else. Have you got a, a, a similar take or a different take? It's interesting at a few levels, isn't it? At a, almost a very personal level, you know, a lot of these people are multi-millionaires, maybe billionaires. And so they don't really have to do anything else. Mm. Uh, and to, to go and then say, I'm going to quit as CEO of this company and I'm going to go, so that's Jack Dorsey quitting Twitter and say, oh, I'm going to go to Square, rename a block. He was already the CEO, but he's oriented the country in that, at the company in that direction. In a similar way to that, that which Mark Zuckerberg and the rest of Facebook have rebranded to Meta and taken a very sharp turn, uh, Google and Microsoft have both been very public about uh, this space, at least their respective CEOs have. Remember that they're quite late cycle companies now. Mm -hmm. The average age of a lot of Fortune 500 companies has been decreasing over the decades. And so these companies, some of them are now 20, 15, 20, 30 years old. And when, when these people who make these decisions look around, 
Someone like Jack Dorsey says, the crypto space reminds me of the internet in its early days. And they don't just say it, they actually have placed bets very publicly on it. And they are betting billions and billions of dollars on this. But they don't do that by accident. And it's, uh, they, they're putting money where their mouth is. Mm -hmm. I, I thought, I noticed that the, the person, I believe his surname is Marcus, who was working on Meta, now Meta, previously Facebook's project, he's left mm -hmm. uh, now. And so there's just a lot of movement in that industry where people are jumping ship and they're taking, you can almost see very different outlooks on the way this future looks like. You mentioned Web3, that's Chris Dixon at Andreessen Horowitz. Some of them are saying this will be an open source, interoperable, protocol-based future. And then others are saying we're going to create closed gardens and ecosystems that we control. And in a way, over the next decade, we're going to see which of those models works and which don't. Suffice to say, there is so much activity there, it would be impossible to ignore it. And some very big bets are being placed. Do you have any thoughts on top of that? I, I mean, it seems like an area that's definitely growing in a, an internet native currency, I think, for, for global inclusion makes a lot of sense. But not everybody's on on board with that, right? Elon Musk was out this week, week saying Web3 is a, a joke and a buzzword. And whether or not the con, it's always hard to parse out what he's saying, right? It has become somewhat of a buzzword. It's it kind of like metaverse for me in that people are throwing it out to mean a whole lot of things. Metaverse can be the next iteration of social media. Some people are, you know, it's synonymous with gaming, which I don't think it necessarily needs to be. Um, and it's the same thing with, with Web3, this concept of decentralization coming into the internet. I don't think it's one thing or the other. And when you, when you label them like this, it, it does make it feel binary, like it's either happening or it's not. The reality is decentralized concepts can come in in a myriad of different ways and influence a myriad of different interactions or business models or communities or what have you. And I don't think it's as binary as people want to paint it. So decentralization is coming. Cryptocurrency is, is coming and going to have an impact on people. I think, you know, a baseline of uh, value store and transfer that that's really what it starts with and how, how far down the rabbit hole it goes that's going to depend on the business models that, that get built around it. But the idea that it's just going to be this decentralized utopia is probably not true in that all of this technology needs a usability layer. Just the new system will have less usability layers than the old system. And when we think about things, whether it's the internet or financial services or anything out there, pretty much everything is a usability layer. Your, your web browser is a usability layer. Your broker's is a usability layer. The pension fund's a usability layer for how people can, you know, gain value or share information or access technology, whatever it might be. So I think trying to predict the exact business models that will thrive, impossible, but seeing the potential for the technology, I think it's definitely there. And what we're seeing from big names making, as you say, big bets, that for me is indicative of the potential. Yeah, buzzword bingo, right? Exactly. Metaverse, Web3. Uh, looking past the buzzwords helps one see where the opportunities and the risks yeah. lie, uh, which is why this podcast, I guess, is so appreciated, crypto clarified. Getting past the buzzwords is important to spot the opportunities and risks. It's exactly what we're doing. If I use one analogy, for example, the technology analogy, pretty good privacy, PGP. Uh, invented, released in the 90s, it's kind of unbreakable encryption for emails. Mm -hmm. And uh, it 
it's not that it didn't take off, but the problem that they faced was that no one knew how to use it. Mm -hmm. Even like really kind of cybersecurity nerds have trouble juggling the keys and managing them when they expire and whatnot. Uh, in the end, the way in which that kind of encryption technology was brought to the masses was just baking it in. So we're speaking right now on what is an end-to-end -end encrypted feed. Mm -hmm. You use WhatsApp, Moxie Marlin Spike built that into WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. So it's all software. It made it usable, but nobody knew they were using it. It's just the way things are done. And I suspect what's going to happen is with these open source digital asset protocols, people won't even realize they're using Bitcoin. They'll just be tipping people on Twitter, for instance. Yep. Uh, or they'll be interacting in these internet and computer mediated environments, which we're doing right now. Uh, but they won't realize that the payments that if you spend any time on Twitch, you see people making tips and payments. They won't even realize they're using these crypto networks to do it. It just works. Mm -hmm. It's fast, cheap, and I like it. Uh, and that ultimately, as you say, that user interface level UI uh, that will should hopefully be put in place to bring some of this uh, even further into the mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. Given this is a December recording, I would be remiss for not uh, trying to do a little bit of a look forward to 2022. Any big predictions for what you think we might see next year for the crypto space? I wasn't aware to bring my crystal ball along to this podcast. So I have to admit, like, if I make any predictions, it's without the aid of my crystal ball. Uh, however, we mentioned something today, the entry of big tech into this space. Uh, that's that's going to keep growing. I mean, whatever they do is going to change things. Uh, there is so much experimentation. We see it around. Here's the wild card. So years ago, I tried to explain crypto to folks from the entertainment industry, and they looked at me blankly. They're like, what would you talk about? The same people turned up this year and said, I heard about non-fungible tokens, NFTs, which is the Collins Dictionary Word of the Year for 2021. I am fascinated to see what happens when you take a group of creative people from the entertainment industry, so film, art, music, and then you put them together with open source developers on these networks and you see what they come up with. I can't give you a hard prediction on what they're going to come up with, otherwise they'd probably be doing it already. <laughs> However, that combination is going to be ex it's, it's extremely eclectic and I, I would keep an eye on that space. Like all this, A lot of the activity we've seen this year is not really sustainable. Yeah. That's okay. That's part of the entrepreneurial process. Mm -hmm. But whatever they come up with, something will happen. I don't think it's going to go to zero and disappear. And I'm fascinated to know uh, what will unfold over the coming year in the NFT space. Do you have any thoughts of your own? Uh, look, I agree big tech uh, entering is, is going to be a big deal next year. But we're going to see, uh, I, I think, entrance outside of that space. I would be not surprised at all to see some of the big entertainment companies entering uh, entering the space, particularly around what we've seen with with creative engagement on NFTs, be that sort of Hollywood or be that gaming, um, I think some of the major major shops are gonna are gonna come and enter in. And then I think if I think more crypto natively, I think scaling solutions are gonna be a big talking point next year. Um, layer two solutions, roll ups, these type of things, I think are, are gonna come to the forefront more and more next year as a few of these things come online and we potentially get into sort of ETH two. Uh, actual implementation. This, these will be interesting topics as well. Um, and the third one, I think, I think we'll likely find or at least see starting to mainstream 
a use for NFTs that isn't collectibles, something a little more tangible to most people. I'm a big believer in that as a, as a technology, and I think it's going to start to find its way into other elements of people's lives. Thanks for joining us today, Ben, and for sharing your thoughts. We're going to transition to Camilla now for uh, the second half of today's episode. Okay, so moving on to what's been happening in, I think, what is a lot of people's favorite topic at the moment, Metaverse. Um, it's been a, another month of kind of big headlines of, of reasonably substantial sort of market boots. I think the the bit of news that everybody has been talking about, or at least in my spheres, is uh, what Kathy Woods was in the media saying this month. So she's quoted as saying it's going to be a trillion dollar industry, a multi-trillion dollar industry, and that it's going to affect sort of every avenue or every industry. Um, Camilla, I'd be really interested to sort of get your feel on that and, and how you think that's sort of being received. Um, sure. I think, you know, the, the reason why um, analysts and the investors are, are making kind of these grand statements about the metaverse is because like, the vision of the metaverse is that the idea is that everyone will be inhabiting uh, a digital realm, um, a digital life in the future, because we, we pretty much already are. And so the idea is that in the future, this will only uh, intensify um, and all of our kind of interactions and assets and um, things we do and own will be in just like this digital world and kind of the like the fancy name for for that is the metaverse but if, if you just like see how you're interacting today like we're already kind of in in a metaverse right like we're mm -hmm. um, always online um, a lot of us already have like a, a chunk of our savings in in crypto uh, some people have a their most prized possessions in NFTs. Um, and, and then like, if, if you just imagine that kind of going forward, you can imagine how um, instead of building a static website, you will be able to own land in, in kind of this like virtual space and set up your like, whatever your goods and services that people are offering on a website, they, they will offer it in, in kind of this virtual uh, reality uh, place and they'll be able to sell it with uh, crypto and, um, and a lot of those assets will be actually NFTs. And so if you think that a lot of our activity will be happening in kind of the digital space, you can kind of understand why uh, people are seeing such a like big opportunity, but that's obviously kind of the optimistic take on it. Well, yeah. And I mean, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty around the exact path that it takes. And you mentioned mm -hmm. there about owning land. And I think that comes into this, this is sort of the collision with gaming um, that we're seeing with this metaverse stuff. And I think a lot of different people have a lot of different visions about what that is going to look like. I don't think that the idea of occupying a digital world albeit a very social one, which is sort of the metaverse vision, it's not like people couldn't do that today, right? Like online social gaming multiplayer communities, this isn't a new concept. So why do we think, is there a view as to like why people are going to start piling through the door instead of simply wanting a page full of photos on Facebook to actually going into what's much more of a Ready Player One kind of view of the world? Yeah, I think the, the, the big difference is that in, in this future, uh, 
people are actually owners of, of this land or of, of this digital property, right? Like right now, sure, like you can go uh, into um, a game and, but, you know, your, your weapons in the game, your skins, your whatever the what whatever the stuff that you you are using in that game is not actually owned by you like you can't take it with you in your wallet and then sell it in a secondary market and and make money off that like the company owns it you can get kicked from your from the game you can get banned as it has happened to other people and they they lose all their in-game items in this kind of metaverse like at least like the crypto version like the blockchain version of the metaverse users are actually owners of their digital assets and so you see how people are actually valuing this um, and digital land is already going for a lot. Like um, we have this uh, great metaverse report on, on the Defiant and together with um, Dapp Raider and that, that report shows kind of the huge interest in uh, digital kind of blockchain supported land. Um, and for example, there was one, um, piece of land sold for over $2 million in Decentraland recently uh, because it was in like this very coveted spot. And so that kind of links to not just ownership, sort of prices, but like... Do you reckon those prices are sustainable though? Or it's... Oh. I mean, the, look, the thing that I've, I kind of buy is that there's a lot of people that bought a lot of Ethereum very early and mm -hmm. they've become a little bit decoupled from what the real world value of that is. I think there's a lot of that going on for sure. Like wh when you talk to NFT investors, they're thinking of these prices in ETH terms and not in dollar terms. So they they say, okay, this is worth 0.25 ETH, which you know doesn't sound like a lot, like for someone who owns a lot of ETH. But you know when you think about it, it's like around a thousand dollars. So mm -hmm. in in the real world, like would you actually spend a thousand dollars in like a digital photo maybe not um but i think you're right i think that's a lot of that is going on it's just after this huge kind of bull phase mm -hmm. people are, are suddenly you know have a lot of crypto in their hands and and they they're spending it on all these kind of nfts and yeah. the metaverse uh, land and, and so on so maybe they're not sustainable in in the short term but you know i think there's this idea of like a pendulum in, in, in markets. We might be in one extreme now, things will stabilize and crash. But then if you like look through kind of in the long term, if this idea like actually pans out that we'll be spending a lot of our time and money in these digital spaces, maybe those like pieces of land will regain value at some point. Maybe, maybe moving on to some, some other, well, news or things that are happening in DeFi. Uh, DAOs have also been sort of very topical and uh, talking about how these are actually managed. There's been, you know, news about exploits and, and, and things like that. But I'd like to talk a little bit about SushiSwap and what's been going on with them in terms of how they're managing that organization from like a community-led DAO and the, the, some of the issues that they've been having lately. Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting story. Um, I find it fascinating. So SushiSwap, I think like knowing a bit of the context uh, is, is also interesting. So re remember that SushiSwap was born as a fork of Uniswap uh, last year. And that, you know, they, a fork is obviously, you know, a copy, a direct copy of, of the code. Um, 
And what they did was they uh, incentivized liquidity providers of Uniswap to uh, transfer their liquidity from Uniswap to SushiSwap. Um, and in exchange for doing that, SushiSwap uh, airdropped the Sushi token on liquidity providers. And this was called the vampire attack. And it was at a time when Uniswap didn't have a token. So it was uh, this whole thing that we're building a more decentralized version of Uniswap. Um, you know, Uniswap is led by an, an actual like company based in New York with Hayden as a CEO with like venture capital. Um, and SushiSwap positioned itself as, no, we're the community AMM. We have a token, we're led by a DAO, we don't, we're not taking VC money. Um, and so that was kind of their whole thing. And it gained a lot of support in, in like the Ethereum and DeFi community. But now it looks like we are seeing how actually hard it is for um, for DAOs to to manage their teams. You know, like these decentralized organizations. Um, in the end, like I think humans need need structure. Um, like leadership will emerge whether people want it or not. Like people will coalesce around uh, around leadership. Uh, because people like need guidance uh, they need responsibilities otherwise like an organization just like it, it's very hard to to move move it forward mm. and uh, right now that's that's kind of what what's happening in in, in sushi swap um, there's a lot of like drama and turmoil that I think has resulted from kind of this lack of structure and clear responsibilities so um, the the CTO Joseph belong, uh, quit out of like accusations from um, like former uh, of contributors that he he was uh, like an egomaniac and like taking all all these like unilateral decisions, which I guess like if you're the CTO, you're you know bound to make. But right. because it went like it wasn't kind of the the spirit of sushi swap that I, I maybe some contributors and devs felt like that wasn't his his right to be making those decisions so it's a huge power struggle and then um one of the like the core devs zero x maki um and you know like you, you get like these funny names um uh, because they're like half of them are just like anonymous uh devs with like cartoon avatars so zero x maki uh, was one of the core devs and he he left in September and um, and now like investors like are calling him to come back but he he told the divine he's not coming back so it's just like a big mess it's it's a lot of drama um, I still think mm -hmm. like SushiSwap is such an interesting story and and they had innovated beyond just like copying uh, Uniswap like they had created um, a whole kind of slew of like additional products on top of sushi swap so i, I think mm -hmm. they, they work kind of creating value um but i think they it's come to a point where they do need structure and it's something that like a lot of DAOs are, are grappling with at the moment like how, how to manage these organizations yeah it's it's interesting to think about them in the context of corporate structures right like company corporate cultures sort of relatively formalized and standardized these days and a lot of people have been touting DAOs as a more, you know, uh, a, a flatter, a more fair, a more equitable way of, of sort of organizing collective endeavor. But we might be seeing some of the limits of at least the way the current iteration of these are. Uh, 
it's going to be interesting again to see the the kind of iteration in the space and how people put these to work and the exact kind of nature of the enterprise that these work best for. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how this unfolds. I think Sushi Swap's been a very sort of interesting use case or test case for how a decentralized organization can take and evolve and add value through iterating open source code. I mean, that's very crypto. That's very Web 3.0. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting to see where this one ends up. Yeah, for sure. I think like other models to look at are the MakerDAO and the synthetics model. So mm-hmm. they both had like foundations starting out and they've like since dissolved those foundations. Yep. And, and but to do that, they, they, they did kind of like structure their DAOs in a way that there are kind of like more traditional teams and responsibilities uh, distributed across. So yeah, I, I think we're, we're, we're going to see kind of like different models of managing DAOs emerge. Um, and so, so far, it's just like a lot of experimentation, but it looks like MakerDAO and Synthetics are doing things right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely interesting. Um, l- l- moving, the last point I want to talk about today <laughs> is sort of looking more, less at the DeFi native stuff and, and more at uh, what's happening, let's call it the real world. Um, what's been going on in Washington this week? So two big, or this month, sorry, two big stories there. SEC uh, being sued by Grayscale. Uh, in order to try to get a spot Bitcoin uh, product into the market. And uh, the the recent uh, round of people testifying in front of Congress on, on what's happening in DeFi. So maybe if we talk about uh, the Grayscale story first, how is this being received from your perspective? Does, it, does this seem like a, a progressive move for the space in order to go mainstream or something that's going to slow the process down? Um, I, I think it moves it forward. You know, I, I think like people in crypto are, um, a little bit frustrated at, at how slow the SEC has been in allowing, uh, investment products, uh, for, for crypto. And so, you know, if, if Grayscale has found like a new way forward, um, and, and a way to kind of like push the SEC into uh, into allowing more of these products maybe it's a way forward uh what do you think uh, i think we probably need regulation in order to take crypto DeFi mainstream um i think that you know we want progressive and, and innovative forward-looking regulation and proper engagement from you know regulators all over the world i can't imagine a lawsuit is a good way to get them to be mm. supportive um and we're going to have to go through rounds of iterations. They're, they're asking people to come up and testify on the Hill. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But one company looking at one product, making a big deal about it, I'm not sure is what's going to move us that way. I mean, if you want people to become adversarial, taking them to court's a pretty good way to do that. I mean, who sues the regulator? Um, <laughs> it, it worries me that, like, it, you know, feels to me a little bit like grayscale feels backed into a corner. They've got investment mm. products. They have a $35 billion closed-ended fund that I think it obviously is a worse structure than what else is out there, than, than an ETF wrapper, than an open-ended fund wrapper. And if others get the go before them, that their business model's toast. And so it feels a little desperate from them as a firm because if you were really here for the long term, you build bridges, you don't start wars. Um, mm. So I, I'm, I'm not positive that this is going to be, this is a net positive thing for the space, but 
we'll move past it either way, but I'm not sure this is yeah. the most constructive way to go about, you know, moving things forward. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It, it, it does feel like it, it creates more antagonism than, than it should, but at the same time, like how, how, how more and, and, and like how, like how worse, how much worse can it get like from, from the SEC? I think maybe. Uh, well, look, as someone that was in financial services in, uh, in 2009, I can tell you that regulators can come and put a lot on a lot of big institutions. So, mm. you know, it's also, I think, important to acknowledge that they do play an important role in building confidence. Like a lot of people are only happy having money in a bank account because they think there's the, there's the government guarantees and these exist in a lot of countries, US included. And that's really the regulation that's put in place to kind of do that consumer protection thing. Um, I want a billion people to be using DeFi in 10 or 15 years time. I think I, I find it very difficult to work out how we build that confidence if we can't sort of work with appropriate institutions to provide accountability and transparency and, you know, disclosure, consumer protection, these sort of things. So there's a partnership that does need to happen there. I agree it's not as cooperative as we'd like it. Some of the wording in the recent infrastructure bill, like definitions being ill-defined, things like this aren't mm -hmm. up to scratch, aren't good enough. Still just can't see a lawsuit getting us yeah. there. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Yeah. So how about the testimony that we've had this week? What's the reaction been from everybody in the DeFi space that you speak with? So I think it's been surprisingly uh, positive, the the reaction to, um, you know, having a, a cryptocurrency leaders testifying in Congress. Um, it was surprising to see how lawmakers were a lot more uh, knowledgeable than expected. Um, they, they were asking pretty like nuanced and like balanced um, questions. Uh, and it, it felt like from their line of questions that they weren't taking um, a very kind of adversarial uh, tone or, or, or position uh, towards crypto. They were just like more, just like genuinely wanting to understand it, uh, see how um, th they could work with it and see like just like understand where the actual uh, risks are and like how to move past it. So I think it, it was like really, really positive. Um, I think um, it, it was also a great opportunity for uh, for crypto to kind of like get their uh, their voice heard in kind of the more mainstream. Um, and so I think it was like overall like re really positive for the space. No, I, I, I agree. I think it, it was more, the tone was more informed than I was probably expecting as well. Um, and people want to learn. I mean, it showcases that, it, it, look, if even the guys in Washington can see that this is inevitable, that this technology is coming, that it's going to affect financial services, that DeFi concepts are, you know, albeit maybe a little raw at the moment, maybe a little, you know, still a little underdeveloped, but that this stuff is going to be powerful and this is going to affect things and they're going to need to get their head around it. I don't think we ever expect them to be the quickest moving guys in the room, right? But I think that there is an acknowledgement that this isn't going away. This isn't, you know, a fad. It's not a fashion trend. This is here to stay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's insane. Like, I don't think I would have expected to hear, like, the words DeFi and, like, NFTs being, you know, 
talked about in the US Congress in 2021. So um, I think it is like a, a really positive development. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, NFT is the word of the year. So yes, <laughs> going to make it there eventually. All right. Be yeah. Before we finish up, given this is sort of our December recording, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you for a uh, 2022 prediction. Ooh. What do you think the big um, thing in crypto DeFi is going to be next year? So I think, I think it'll be DAOs. Um, I think, you know, we, we've started to, to see um, just like, just like glimpse at how powerful they can be, you know, organizing people and, and capital across the world uh, in this kind of just like very fluid and efficient way. Um, I don't think we've, we have really seen the power of DAOs yet. Uh, I think we had a glimpse of it with Constitution DAO, kind of, you know, people rallying um, up around this like grand idea and concept, uh, which was to buy like a rare copy of the, of the US Constitution. They were able to raise over, I think it was like 40 million or more. Um, but yeah, uh, over 40 million in like a couple of days. Um, in the end they lost, but you know, it's, it's still the point stands uh, that people are realizing how powerful these tools can be. So I think, and we're already seeing like people just like starting to dream bigger with DAOs. Uh, so I think we'll see more of that next year. Like I like it more uh, decentralized cooperation, more dreaming big, more empowerment. It's a good yeah. prediction. Yeah. Unfortunately, with that, I think we're out of time. Uh, I hope that everybody has found this podcast useful and informative. Um, if you would like any more information, please do reach out to us, infoeu at wisdomtree.com. Um, I know we weren't able to get to everybody's question here. So if you would like us to answer it directly, please just, just drop us an email and we'd be happy to get back to you guys directly. Uh, thanks again for listening. We hope everybody has a great day. Bye.